0: This is an episode that equally demands both the head and the heart. For today, the great philosopher Plato will join forces with St. Therese of Lisieux to unpack a great biblical mystery. What did Jesus mean when he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Greetings and welcome to another episode of The Myth Pilgrim. Today is our first venture into one of the greatest series of children's books of all time, C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. Now, there could be an entire podcast series just on Narnia. So rich is its Christian symbolism and so insightful is the mind of C.S. Lewis. So many Christian themes from uh, creation... The Fall, Redemption, Sin, the Kingdom of God, Salvation, Truth, Judgment. These are all represented within the pages of this great seven-part series. So what I plan to do on the Myth Pilgrim is to gradually chip away at the series, one theme at a time, or even a section of a theme at a time. Today, we'll explore the theme of Spiritual Childhood by wrestling with one simple question. Why is it that out of the four Pevensey children, it was Lucy, the youngest child, who discovers the wardrobe into Narnia. And why does it always seem to be Lucy who first notices Aslan, that great Christ-like lion, before any of the other children? And with the help of Plato and Saint Therese, we will hopefully illuminate the question posed in our introduction. Are you ready? Let us begin. To escape the rain of German bombs falling upon London, the four Pevensey children, Peter, Susan, Edmund and Lucy, are sent to live with their uncle in the English countryside. One day, a little restless of being trapped inside a big old house with their eccentric uncle and petty housekeeper, they go exploring and happen to come across a spare room upstairs. Not seeing anything interesting there except an old wardrobe, the three older kids move on but Lucy feels drawn to the wardrobe and decides to have a look inside. As she slips in, she soon realises that the wardrobe was anything but ordinary. Pushing through the many delightful fur coats, she suddenly finds herself outside in the beautiful snow-covered world of Narnia. This was a land in which animals talk, magical beings like fauns and minotaurs roam, and the majestic lion Aslan ruled. Lucy then meets a fawn known as Mr. Tumnus, and they have a nice tea-side conversation before she returns to her own world the way she came, through the wardrobe. Excited, she tells her siblings about this magical otherworld she had found in the back of the wardrobe in the spare room. But of course, no one believes her. And who could blame them? After all, anyone with common sense knows that wardrobes are not enchanted and that animals can't talk. One glance at the ordinary wardrobe, and it was clear that Lucy was either making it all up, or she was dreaming. And so they don't believe her. Now, I know we've only like just started the story, but what we've read out is actually already enough to spring us into a very wholesome exploration. And I actually feel the best way to do this is to borrow a teeny little bit of philosophy, or philosophical language, to break open this scene. So here it is. In the scene, the Pevensey children showcase two different ways in which people can interact with the world. The first way is known as the way of appearance, where we judge what is real by how things appear to us. For example, the older siblings disbelieve Lucy's Narnia claim based on the appearance of an ordinary-looking wardrobe and an ordinary-looking Lucy. Now, by the word appearance and ordinary looking, I'm not just referring to like physical sight, like vision, but I also refer to the way we are accustomed to experiencing the world. For example, because Lucy was only gone for a fleeting moment in the older kid's eyes, it appeared that she could not have actually had tea with a fawn for hours and hours as she had claimed. And that's a fair enough grown-up assessment to make, right? Right. But there is a second way in which we can interact with the world other than the way of appearance. And that is the way of reality. In our scene, Lucy interacted with Narnia not just because it appeared real to her, but because it was real, objectively, assuming she wasn't lying or dreaming or mad. And here's the thing. The world of Narnia would continue to remain real even if the others, including herself one day, were to deny it. This is because reality will always remain real, regardless of what any one individual thinks about it. Regardless of what Lucy's siblings think about Narnia, it is still real. It is more real than what appears to be real. Are you completely confused at this point? Good, and sorry. <laughs> I'm aware this whole appearance versus reality philosophy business may still seem a little bit abstract for some of us. So I want to hopefully illustrate it a little bit more clearly with a famous image known as Plato's cave. I promise that if we can get our minds around this, it'll become dynamite for us in understanding a key dimension of the spiritual life. So Plato's cave goes something like this. Imagine some prisoners have spent their entire lives inside a cave. Now, imagine these prisoners are chained in position in such a way that they are always facing the back wall of the cave and can only ever see the back wall. In other words, they can never turn around to face the cave's entrance. Now, if there was a campfire outside the cave, consider what the prisoners would see when something like a deer walks by the campfire and the front of the cave the prisoners would only see the shadow of the deer projected onto the back wall. Not being able to turn around and see the real physical deer, they'd easily think the shadow on the wall was the real deer. Or if something like a butterfly fluttered by the front of the cave, they would only ever see the shadow of the butterfly dancing on the back wall. If you were one of the prisoners, you would be forgiven to think the shadow of the butterfly was the real butterfly because, again, you've never had the chance to turn around to see the real butterfly. You would mistaken the appearance of the butterfly with the reality of the butterfly. There's those two words again, appearance and reality. Now, consider what would happen if one day one of the prisoners broke loose of his chains and explored the outside of the cave for the first time. Imagine his surprise and delight and fear when he actually sees a real deer and a real butterfly for the first time. What would it be like to discover that everything that you had thought was real, in other words, the shadows, was merely a shadow and not the real thing? Imagine how hard it would be to convince the prisoners still trapped inside the cave that there was more to reality than the appearance of those shadows on the wall. Now, I'm going to suggest that the resistance the escapee would get from the prisoners is like the resistance Lucy got from her siblings. After all, in all their lives, wardrobes have only ever contained clothes. Why would they now suddenly believe a little girl who claimed that one could be a portal to another world? And here's the the rubber-hits-the-road question. How do you convince someone who is stuck in the world of appearances to believe in the world of reality? This is a good question, and one that has gigantic spiritual consequences, especially for us adults, because it is we, rather than children, who live in the world of appearances. Most of us adults, intelligent beings as we are, are actually the prisoners in the cave, facing the back wall, thinking the shadows that we see are actually the real thing. We adults tend to judge what is real by the way things appear to us. As an example, say someone like um, the president uh, appears to us to be a fool, not saying anything about the real world presidents and out there. Um, we simply accept that because, because we've decided that he's a fool, we simply accept that he's a fool and go about our day-to-day business. A child, however, is not so certain about this at all. In fact, a child doesn't even think in those categories. From a two-year-old's perspective, um, let's call our two-year-old Emma, from Emma's perspective, if the president came over for dinner one night, she might discover him to be a a storyteller, um, a magician, a father, and a very good playmate too. From a child's eyes, she is much more in the position to see a far more real and complete person of the president, while the adult that night having made up his mind already, insists only on seeing his shadow because the adult still thinks he's a fool. There's a lot we can learn from children about how to interact with the spiritual world. By looking past the way things appear to us, we're able to truly see the world like a child, like a Lucy. Because Narnia is actually more real for us Christians than we think. After all, we too have an enchanted kingdom hidden in our midst. It's not called Narnia, but rather it's called the kingdom of God. And Jesus says that it is among us. Indeed, it is within us. And just as it takes little Lucy to see Narnia, so also it takes little children to see the kingdom of God. For the Lord says that unless we become like little children, we will never enter into the kingdom. Unless we become open again, To objective reality, other than the appearance of reality, we will never enter the kingdom. For the kingdom of God is not found in lofty ideas or high philosophy, but in ordinary mundane things like people and gratitude and simple acts of love. It is found in ordinary things like plain tasting wafers during Sunday Mass. The kingdom of God is found in ordinary nitpicky, annoying parishioners that smell of mothballs? Do we judge the reality of the Eucharist by its mere appearance, or accept the reality of God's presence in it? Do we judge our annoying parishioner by her mere appearance, or accept the reality that this woman is a princess in God's kingdom? Let us never be fooled by the mundane veiling of God's kingdom in our midst. Later in the Narnia stories, we find that the four Pevensey children discover that it is actually in Narnia that their true identities as kings and queens become unveiled, an identity that they would never lose even when they return to our world. The way they used to see themselves in England, that was but mere shadow play. So it is with us in the kingdom of God. We think we know who we are now. We don't really know who we are now. What we think we know of ourselves right now as we're listening to this podcast, that's but mere shadow play. Only once we humble ourselves as spiritual children can we realise that we too are royalty, divine royalty, eternal princes and princesses in God's kingdom. Spiritual childhood is a matter of the heart, not the head. In another book of his, author C.S. Lewis once remarked that to be a Christian is to have a child's heart but a grown-up's head. That's neat, isn't it? To be a Christian is to have a child's heart and a grown-up's head. This means that we are all still invited to make adult decisions, to think critically and to judge prudently. However, our hearts are to remain childlike, with an attitude of teachability and openness, one that encounters reality with a sense of curiosity and wonder. A mature head with a childlike heart, that is the essence of spiritual childhood. If you're enjoying this episode of The Myth Pilgrim, please subscribe to it so you can stay up to date with all the latest episodes. If you'd like to be notified by email every time a new episode is released, hop onto the website at themythpilgrim.com to register. I want to share with you now what a real-life example of a Lucy Pevensey might look like. In the Catholic tradition, St. Thérèse of Lisieux is held up as a particularly wonderful exemplar of spiritual childhood. Even though she wrote her autobiography, the story of a soul as a 23-year-old suffering immensely from physical sickness and spiritual desolation, you can see all throughout her manuscript the free heart of a child. For her, the world was a truly magical place and far from ordinary. It was enchanted because every stroke of creation, every person she met and every circumstance she found herself in was charged with the presence of God. For example, when she was painfully refused entry into the Carmelite convent at the age of 15, the French skies that day were bucketing down with rain. Rather than sinking further into misery, she understood with spiritual certainty that this was heaven crying with her, consoling her in her disappointment. Nature seemed to share in my bitter sadness, she writes, for during those three days the sun did not shine and the rain poured down in torrents. I have noticed that in all the serious circumstances of my life that nature always reflected the image of my soul. On days filled with tears, the heavens cried along with me. On days of joy, the sun sent forth its joyful rays in profusion. In a similar way, on the day she receives her Carmelite habit, it happened to snow, and she keenly observed that the snow's whiteness reflected the colour of her new habit. She exclaims, My glance was drawn to the snow. The monastery garden was white like me. What thoughtfulness on the part of Jesus, anticipating the desires of his fiancée, he gave her snow. Snow! What mortal bridegroom could make snow fall from heaven to charm his beloved? Then, of course, there's St. Teresa's many, many metaphors and divine revelations involving flowers, a love which earned her the nickname, the little flower. For her, the whole world was Abba Father's garden. She exclaims, Jesus set before me the book of nature. I understand how all the flowers God has created are beautiful how the splendour of the rose and the whiteness of the lily do not take away the perfume of the violet or the delightful simplicity of the daisy. I understand that if all flowers wanted to be roses, nature would lose her springtime beauty and the fields would no longer be decked out with little white flowers. So it is in the world of souls. Perfection consists in doing his will, in being what he wills us to be. Through the writings of little Therese, hopefully you can glimpse something of how a spiritual child sees the world, how a saint sees the world. There are no ordinary things, ordinary moments, ordinary people. Everything is a part of God's sweeping story and the entire world can be understood as the Father's backyard. Even our pain and suffering today is not just ordinary, but rather extraordinary, because God can be met in it too. Everything. Today is charged with the grandeur of God, and if we ask for the grace of spiritual childhood, we can see it is too. So there we have it. I'm aware, as I finish writing this episode, that this has been a little bit more abstract than usual, and I do humbly apologise if I've lost anyone along the way. I hope your adult head was well stimulated, even while your child's heart was well celebrated. But I do hope at the very least, this episode has inspired you to become a Lucy. So the practical pilgrim exercise I have for you today is as follows. Identify someone in your life who is a wardrobe. What? What I mean by this is identify someone you consider to be boring and plain and predictable. Have coffee with them or go out for a walk. But here's the thing. Approach the conversation with them with the heart of a Lucy. Push all your prejudice and personal agendas aside. Be open to receiving something new from them, learning something new. Consider them a mystery waiting to be unraveled. Let your sole passion be to listen to them. If their conversational style is stifled and flat, ask probing questions to get them to delve deeper into their feelings on certain topics. But have no other agenda. See what you discover. Nine times out of ten, you may well discover an entire world inside that person, inside that wardrobe that you never discovered, just like Lucy did with her wardrobe. And who knows, for the other person, it might just be the first time in their life that someone took an interest in their enormous, beautiful inner world. Okay, the end. I leave it here. Until next time, dear pilgrim, Journey forth, take care and God.